You're listening to One Dime Radio. Become a patron at patreon.com slash one dime to support the show and get access to extra content. We think that ideology is something blurring, confusing our straight view. Ideology should be glasses which distort our view. And the critique of ideology should be the opposite. Like you take off the glasses so that you can finally see the way things really are. When you talk about a revolution, most people think violence without realizing that the real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for, not in the way you reach them. Philosophers call someone a relative, by which they mean it's a person that holds that any view is as good as any other view. My simple response to that is this. No one holds that view. No one believes that every view is as good as every other view. Welcome to One Dime Radio. Today we will be discussing a rather contentious topic, a subject which is extremely relevant to the political scene, and depending on your point of view, is a huge factor behind the malaise of the contemporary left. And of course, I'm talking about the PMC, the title of this podcast, the professional managerial class, which some people uh, debate whether it even exists. There are numerous people who have written about the so-called PMC, Adolf Reed Jr., Catherine Liu, David Graeber, many more. But for this episode, I decided to bring on the good friends of the show, Dave McCarricker and Elton, who have a course on Theory Underground, all dedicated to understanding the PMC and the history of all the theory behind it. It's a very encompassing course based on the syllabus I saw, and you can actually find it on YouTube for free, unlike other Theory Underground courses. And uh, it covers a lot of the key ideas from the most important books written about the subject of the PMC, some of the key ideas uh, which I hope to discuss in this podcast. Elton and Dave are both contributors to Underground Theory Volume 1, a book which I was also featured in, and I've mentioned it before in this podcast. So before getting into what the PMC actually is and all the debates surrounding that, and Dave, Elton, why don't you all introduce yourselves and why did you guys decided to do this course? Why should one dime listeners, why should anyone give a shit about the PMC? Dave, do you want to go first? Sure, I'll take it away. Uh, I think that there are three major categories of people for whom this is going to be relevant. First, woke scolds. Second, Marxists. Third, regular workers. Okay, and so I'll start with the final of those three. I think it's important for regular workers because we get gaslit and socially blackmailed by the professional managerial class on a regular basis. It's important to understand that when they say, oh, we're all in this together and we're all basically the same and we're all just workers out here, you gotta remember like, oh yeah, but you get prestige, you have institutional supports, you get recognition, You have a salary, you have an investment portfolio, you have healthcare, you even have holidays I don't have, and you're trying to act like we're all in this together. Stop whitewashing the distinctions here, right? So that's for regular workers. For Marxists, it's because the revolution didn't go down the way it was imagined. 
the something between the theory and the reality uh, occurred. There's a lot of different ways of theorizing that. At the beginning of my piece in Underground Theory, I talk about it as there's two kinds of theory. What must be done versus why didn't that work out? And so the PMC uh, comes out of trying to figure out why it didn't work out, whether we're talking about socialists, communists, uh, conservatives, liberals, centrists. It doesn't matter. There's a variety of standpoints that have tried to theorize this concept. And for us, or at least for myself, uh, I think that the question of whether it's a class or not should be bracketed. Uh, it's the people who don't think it's a class, I'll give them their due. We can come back to that later. I still think they're wrong. But I just go, it's the professionals and managers of capital, PMC. Professionals and managers of capital, PMC. I still get to keep the acronym, but I am signifying something a little different. Semantically, I think it actually matters for people who get stuck on the uh, problem of class. And then finally, woke scolds, because if they actually care about identity categories that are marginalized versus ones that are uh, prioritized by a system of exploitation and oppression, if they actually care about such things, if, they, if identity politics really is uh, something that they're not just doing it uh, opportunistically, they actually do it because they think that it's a way of approximating justice, then they need to understand their historic role in the reproduction of capital and the fact that uh, black, queer, or any other kind of marginalized PMC is in a very different kind of position than someone who is in the regular working class, the blue collar, uh, all the way down to the Lupin proletariat. Really, uh, they have uh, a different kind of responsibility for uh, their historical consciousness, we'll say. And I call it radical responsibility. They, you want to be a radical, then you have radical responsibility. And part of that is understanding your historical uh, role in the reproduction of capitalism. And so everything Dave said, I agree with. And really, honestly, my answer is more speaking just kind of like personally, like why I got interested in the PMC as a concept and why it was important to me. I grew up in a working class household through a series of events, uh, essentially found myself in the PMC significantly because I went and got a college education, was the first in my family to do so. And that transformed me and alienated me in some ways. And I was interested in, I got a philosophy degree, I was interested in philosophy, but I was also interested in just like, how do I make that relevant for my friends from home and stuff like that. And, and then even just by becoming part of the TMC, I kind of indoctrinated into kind of liberal leftist politics and saw that as being like a pretty marginal group that really wasn't having an influence on mains, mainstream of politics. And I know that basically it felt like something had happened since Marx and I didn't understand what happened to, to Marxism. I was learning about professionals throughout kind of the 
late 19th and 20th century. But when I finally stumbled upon Barbara Ehrenreich, first it was nickel and dimed and then fear of falling where she started talking about the professional middle class is what she called it. And thought there was lots of insights about what the middle class looked like. And then finally stumbled upon her essays from the 70s that were more explicit kind of arguments about what the professional managerial class was kind of in dialogue with the Marxist conversation, which I'm sure we'll get to. But in, in that, she introduced Pentley saying that in the late 20th century, the left had concentrated into the middle class, something that clearly wasn't happening before that time. And that basically, and this is a quote, without a mass working class left, only the most marginal of social reforms as possible. And then we can talk about kind of all of the work that needs to be done politically today. But I think that's where it became really important to me. And I think that essentially why this is important to everybody is that if the left is just a middle class movement, it's never going to really be able to accomplish anything of value. Yeah, those are all really interesting points. And I think one thing that a lot of listeners who may have gotten, uh, quote unquote, radicalized during the uh, Bernie Sanders campaigns of 2016 and 2020, as well as the Corbyn uh, campaign, saw that like there, this was just in voter data that they relied very, both campaigns relied way too much on students, on the university students. And I mean, we, we can see there, there is a certain... I mean, I've have a lot of experience working in in the PMC, not just in the university, but also office jobs. I mean, that's as bad as PMCs you can get. So this does this is quite interesting to me. But I find after reading the author you mentioned, Barbara Ehrenreich, and the the two articles you have in that syllabus, one on the uh, the new study on new left radicalism, and one that's just called the professional managerial class. In it, she very much seems to define it as a class and with objective class interests opposed to the working class, but also opposed to the capitalist class now, but they are reproduce capitalism in their function. Now, you, I, I saw in your uh, lecture series, you cover the Michael Brooks clip where Michael Brooks, when talking to Adolf Reed said, PMC is a mode. It's a more of a mentality. I mean, which of those do you guys tend to agree more with, or are those two interpretations at odds with each other? Uh, whether PMC is more of a mode or an, a class with objective class interest, because it might seem like a semantic debate, but I think it actually is pretty, seems pretty important, doesn't it? Yeah. And I'm not sure that uh, Dave and I will land in the same place on this one. I know that initially when I read Barbara Ehrenreich um, defining it, I was more turned off than intrigued, and so I kind of dismissed it, and it actually took a while. I had to come back to it. So, and again, I should click that those original two articles that you're talking about, she actually wrote with her husband at the time, uh, John Ehrenreich. They define, so the definition of class relationship of, uh, embedded in historical development. So that's half of their definition of a class. It's a relationship embedded in history. And that, of course, like 
a Marxist definition that they're willing to uh, agree with so that you have these groups of people that are in relationship to each other and that through the historical process, through dialectical materialism, those classes come into existence. Of course, the example is, is the bourgeoisie, once the bourgeoisie starts to flourish to some extent, it actually brings into existence the proletariat, for example. But they also have a, a second part of their definition, which is a, quote, coherent social and uh, it has a coherent social and cultural existence, which is to say like a common lifestyle or that it, that it has a shared culture. And that part of their definition of a class is not Marxist, at least not in, in that traditional sense. And that's where not controversial. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe so. Not explicitly. In fact, I do think that there's a lot of Marx when you read him directly. He is kind of almost presupposing like a cultural identity as well. But if you try to um, extract out and have a uh, somewhat systematic definition of class. I think we see it in that that first part, but not so much in the second. So then, when they define a PMC, they're definitely saying you, that you have this cultural, basically professionals and managers who distinguish themselves from the working class and. The working class are doing physical labor or something like that, whereas managers and professionals often have gotten some kind of degree. They're more likely to intermarry rather than marrying somebody from the middle class, that kind of stuff. I personally think that that the Ehrenreichs were wrong on that and that I want us to that first part of the definition of class and reject that cultural part, which I think would take me a while to really argue. But I think that we can still uh, talk about the PMC and get a lot of value, even if we uh, reject part of their argument. That was also what struck out to me as being the biggest questionable claim of kind of an associated culture of the PMC, because I mean, I, I think of a culture when it comes to the PMC, but when thinking about it, it's very narrow. I think of university professors and kind of woke liberal culture, Elizabeth Warren, and people who come out of a certain kind of leftism that they got in university. They use a lot of buzzwords uh, that they got from their post-colonial studies and, and gender theory class, which all might tell them like a lot of truths about the world, but in a way that kind of excludes a lot of class analysis. But, I mean, there's all these other sectors of the PMC, right? It's a pretty, it seems like a pretty, if we're defining it as a class with a culture, I mean, there's, other, what about finance? What are all the managers in finance or government workers who may not necessarily have that orientation? So, um, yeah, and I, my, a question I was going to ask later on was going to be regarding class identity politics, because I feel like that is a slippery slope Marxists can often fall into, which is, assuming a uh, homogenous identity. But before, before getting into that, Dave, uh, Dave, I'd like to get your opinion as to like how you see this P CPMC as a class or 
a mode or mentality or, or what, because you go over it quite extensively in the lecture you did with El the lectures you did with Elton. Yeah. So I think that the PMC is actually almost a red herring. It's less important than the real issue, which is discursive Taylorism. And I think the discursive Taylorism is what we're talking about when we talk about the mode of the PMC. There's a lot of people who are professionals or managers who maybe uh, aren't in this mode is more on the media left. This mode is more on uh, in activist spaces. This mode is uh, inculcated and accelerated by something like uh, a social media platform such as Twitter. So what is the mode? And I say that the general mode tends to persist uh, throughout all these spaces. Uh, and I just, I, I, I say scapegoating ignorant workers, the technocratic elitism that tells, commands, or manipulates instead of reasoning, and the, patern and the paternalistic moralizing administration of everyday life. All right, so as, from the level of a culture, and I think that does matter, uh, we'll get back to it in a moment. It's that because the route to uh, the PMC is through uh, a, an academic system that has been revolutionized by Taylorism, there is this hyper-specialization and everyone gets this sense that they've earned through the difficulty of their homework and the exams that they take and the whether it's the GRE or the LSAT or whatever, it's like, oh yeah, I'm made of a special stuff because I was able to do that. So there is this sense of I'm made of special stuff. That's meritocracy, of course. But along with it comes a bunch of assumptions about solutions come through consciousness raising. Solutions come through representation. Solutions come through symbolic gestures such as land acknowledgments or something like that. Oh, as long as we can all say that we were bad in the past and we're working at it, now we can move on and get back to work, which is ultimately, it's the representation game, the symbolic performance game. So the, the idea that uh, what is called the left today is like dominated by people who have uh, come in through universities means that these kinds of assumptions and, and, or Tactics, we could almost say. I, mean, I don't really think they're tactful at all. But you know, these kinds of tactics are ubiquitous, right? Oh, no clapping at the DSA National Convention 2019. What kind of well? And Elton, in our last conversation about this, had said, "Yeah, that was obviously like part of this like PMC mode." Well, but why? Like those people mean well. They're not trying to make themselves or the organization or the broader say socialism or whatever, a laughing stock of the country. They're not trying to get onto Fox News to get made fun of. Like that's, but it's, they set themselves up for being laughed at. Well, why? And it's because there is a general disdain for workers who don't get it. There is a general disdain for workers who don't subscribe to or follow the correct influencers or correct ideas, right? And this comes along with the culture of scapegoating ignorant workers or scapegoating the ones who, uh, they don't try hard enough in the right ways. They don't do the work, right? As though the workers have a more radical responsibility than the PMC. I reject that idea. Okay, but going back to the idea of culture, I said it wasn't explicit in Marx, right? But it was always there. 
because the working class would not have come to consciousness uh, in this sort of going from in itself to for itself way, if not for the fact that they were excluded from civic society, if not for the fact that they were institutionally excluded. Nowadays, we, when we think of institutional exclusion, we think of black liberation, we think of civil rights, we think of people not being able to drink out of a water fountain, we think of people not being able to sit at an ice cream parlor counter, and we think, oh, that's horrific, that's ridiculous, that's so stupid, gross, why? Well, that was the situation with the working class for quite a while there, right? This was the, uh, the third estate, right? The bourgeois revolution was ultimately to make it so that productive people had rights. And when I say productive people, I mean the people who make society. And uh, Chris Catrone's always good for pointing this out. Uh, at that stage, during the bourgeois revolutions, there wasn't really yet a well-defined distinction between the capitalists and the workers. They were all lumped together in, these, in this productive group, the third estate. They, you know, and then, of course, uh, in the French Revolution, that, that contradiction between those workers and those owners became more manifest. But... I think the most important piece here is that when you don't have your own schools, when you don't have your own libraries, when you don't have your own kitchens, when you don't have access to basic civic institutions, and you are excluded from them, then you actually organize with other people and try to make those happen. Because why? Because you love your children and you want them to have possibilities. It's not just for the conquest of bread. It's for the conquest of being able to have a good life. And being able to educate your kids, right? And so uh, everything Marx does presupposes an already existing struggle to create these institutions outside of the existing institutions, as well as people who are entering the existing institutions arguing, hey, you know what, maybe workers should have uh, access to these things too, huh? So there's a culture that comes with that kind of exclusion. And of course, when you're all living uh, in really tiny little houses and your only job prospects are like the factory, it's a lot more well-defined than it is nowadays. Like part of the whole point of Baudrillard is that uh, now those, that, that kind of solidarity, that kind of obvious class awareness, we lose that because, oh, that person's a prep and that person's a goth and that person's a punk and this person's into collecting stamps, but that person's into working out. And we all have very strong feelings about different kinds of music and different kinds of styles and stuff like that. Well, why is that? It's not just consumerism. It's actually that the schooling system as it exists came as a response to working class organizing in the early 20th century. It was developed to create hyper niche reactionary identity groups with, within these things called peers, right? The, this artificial category called peer groups. And so there's a culture that comes out of that. And the people within that schooling system who excel, they have their own culture too. Now, of course, that doesn't mean they're all the same. There's very different ways to be the A-earning kid in class because obviously there's people who get A's easily and then there's people who work their asses off to get their A's. But the one thing that they all agree with or agree on is that they're made of a special stuff. Of course, if they were put on the spot, they probably wouldn't say that. But if they feel it, and the institutions of society are set up to reify that sense that, yes, you are made of a special stuff. You are a leader. They are followers. And I ultimately do not have a problem with technocracy. I ultimately do not have a problem with vanguardism. I ultimately don't care about democracy. I genuinely don't care about that 
That's not my point. And that's what separates me, I think, from a lot of these post-left people who use the term PMC. At the end of the day, it's some kind of populism for them. That's not what it is for me. But anti-populism, which is to say elitism, that is like in your face, oh, if you don't listen, if you don't follow, you don't deserve things, you don't deserve to have a good job. You, oh, you disagree with me on the definition of like what it is to be a woman. Oh, well, you know what? Well, then you shouldn't have a job. That is not good marketing. That is not good sloganeering. That is not good branding. That is not anything that you could imagine any revolutionary leader from the last 200 years ever uh, buying into. It's something that you could only see coming from a certain kind of person who sits in the cafeteria at high school thinking like, oh yeah, we're, we get it. We're part of this special group. And it's this kind of vanguardism that requires disdain against the supposed peers in the group. Brilliant. Yeah, a lot of things there. I want to ask this question to kind of clarify something because some people listening to this might think they know this already by saying, well, what you're describing is just liberals. But I'll give an, a, we, we know we're just, we're not just describing liberal, you're not just describing liberals. And I want to elaborate as to why this is actually like a problem with the left because people like to debate, say, they like to narrow the definition of the left to fit what they want it to be and say, well, the left doesn't exist. It's dead, right? I mean, Chris Catrone makes that argument. And uh, I'm sympathetic to that because I do like to distance. However, I'll give an example as to what really does kind of attest to your point here is a lot of people do have critiques of identity politics on the left, but from a very different angle. Uh, there's this book called Elite Capture that is quite popular, for example, and they say, no, the elite co-opted identity politics and see what we need is real intersectionality class, race, gender, and, you know, we all make a team and we all, in the, how, I think we kind of, we all, I think, might have the opinion here that that actually is PMC leftism, just in a different form. But I mean, why, like, why is this, I think that to get to the question here is, how is the PMC affect actual, the actual left? And why is it relevant? Because it's, I feel like a lot of Marxists might just dismiss this as just liberal hating when it does affect the left. And I mean, there's also Jay Sakai is another example and the settler hypothesis, the reason why there's no working class consciousness is because there's no working class because there's, there's settlers actually. I don't know. Well, how would you like to like uh, address that and uh, its relevance to the left? Because at the end of the day, we have to, I guess, there's an impetus here. So why should people who are already maybe Marxist adjacent or anarchist adjacent, anti-capitalist adjacent, why should they, they give a shit about this, right? Because it's just liberals, right? I'm well, I'll take a stab at it first. I mean, on some level it is, yeah, just liberals. But let me t explain kind of like why it's more than that. First of all, I think like part of what we talked about in class with like reading James Burnham and stuff like that is realizing that that a lot of people identified this phenomenon going on a long time ago. It's not just a recent terminology. It's not just that college professors or that that are too woke and that kind of stuff. That like you see Lenin talking about it as well. And it just was a, a major theme for a long time. Um, it's literally professionals and managers. I mean, there's a 
definition that the Aaron Reichs came up with, which was salaried mental workers who do not own the means of production and whose major function in the social division of labor may be described broadly as the reproduction of capitalist culture and cap capital uh, capitalist class relations. And so it's, it's the professionals, it's the managers and a significant piece of what they're doing is creating class harmony, uh, historically. So especially think of like what gets called the progressive era, which is the end of the, uh, 19th century and coming into the first 20 years of the 20th century. It was a very active time for the labor movement and the Aaron Regs talk about how the number of engineers, the number of professionals essentially just exploded because the capitalists were paying basically to increase the number of people getting an education so that they could kind of engineer how society functioned, government functioned, the factories functioned. And this is where Taylor comes in. So lots of Marxists are familiar with him. Um, Taylor was this guy who essentially, you know, from literally the first sentence of his book on scientific management, he's talking about how do we create class harmony between the working class and the capitalists? So when we're talking about the PMC, like that's one of the main features that we're talking about. These are people who yeah, are going to college and getting a degree and then they're even they're claiming some kind of like justification for existence, not only for creating class harmony, but also like scientific objectivity. Like they, these are the experts. These are the people who have learned something that they can give back to society with. And then we call that era the progressive era because it really was a time where, you know, what we call the liberals today, the progressives were trying to, they were creating, trying to create class harmony to get the workers basically to go on strike less, but they were also creating a bunch of institutions that had never existed that basically forced the capitalists to treat the workers better. And so there was a, a big focus on creating a welfare state, trying to create a system that like basically, uh, I'm forgetting the word, but basically like the, these are the people who are like, here, let working class, let us take care of you. We'll solve those problems for you and make your lives better. Okay. All of that to say, like, there's something like, uh, economically that's going on there and, uh, sociologically. And then fast forward in, what is it like 1990 or something when Barbara Ehrenreich released her book, Fear of Falling, she looks at the, what she's calling the professional middle class by that time, but she's still talking about the PMC from the fifties up through the nineties. And that's who thinks 
through that. That's like the Reagan revolution and stuff like that. And she's, especially since the late 70s, talking about how the Republicans then are kind of weaponizing the elite, the elitism of this group against them. And so that's when you start to see the word liberal used as a uh, slur. And I, so I think that there is something there to say, yeah, we are talking about the liberals and it's partially because Republicans recognized that there was something going on there and started to justifiably in some ways, uh, use propaganda that started just to target them. And then I'll just say things have changed since then too. So that when we're talking about liberals, we're talking about Hillary Clinton and we're talking about Elizabeth Warren. And then of course, a lot of people will throw Bernie Sanders in there as well. Can I get in on this one? Absolutely. I just want to say, wonderful. So like, that's really good. And it sets me up to say a couple of things there. So it's kind of why I like the idea of doing this with Elton. It's like, he gives me a moment to collect myself and think things through. And uh, he, he brings a level of coolness and calmness to things that I don't have. It was really fun teaching the course for that reason, especially since we've been having this conversation for years and years before it actually came to, to teaching it. And we had to teach it because we feel like uh, the people who want to write off, downplay, dismiss the phenomenon that we are trying to talk about in a sort of structural, historical way never actually tarried with the source material. And that source material matters more than, say, a take, right? Like uh, my positions on what to do about this situation have changed. But the, I think that the historical nature of it that Elton brought was indispensable because he read the principles of scientific management as preparation. Well, Charles Winslow Taylor published, oh, you just put it up on the screen. Hold it up again, right here. Yeah, yeah, right there. Okay, that was published in 1909. That is four years after 1905 which was, I believe, when Lenin's brother was uh, killed by the czar, right? For a failed assassination attempt, I believe. Is that right, Elton? Uh, that was the first Russian revolution. I'm trying to remember. I, I think that his brother was killed a few years earlier, but... Right. And what happened for the 30 years leading up to them reading in their newspapers of what had just gone down in Russia? Those 30 years leading up to that were the peak of labor struggles in history, not just in Europe, but also in the United States. That's why, actually, I have to reference, uh, what is it called? It's by Kenneth F. Warren and Dr. Adolf Reed Jr. Uh, it's called, uh, what is it? Renewing Intellectual Black History is the name of the anthology. There's an essay in there by someone whose name I believe is like Judith Stein. And my, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's her name. And it's about those decades leading up to this period. Now, she's not doing it in the context of talking about how the PMC came out of this or whatever, but she's talking about how the, uh, the betrayal of Reconstruction after the Civil War was not just 
white people got more racist. Like, oh, they had regrets and then they got more racist. Uh, and she's pointing out that is the liberal historical tradition is to kind of interpret things as uh, when things go good for black people, it's because of white people feeling less racist. And when things go bad for black people, it's because white people are feeling more racist, right? I mean, you mean I'm, I'm being a little... Not because like so, liberals, right? There's right liberals and who don't have that orientation. You mean like progressive because... They, when they talk about history, right? There's the progressive historians and they have that, they're behind the, that. I don't use, I don't use the word the way you do. I don't talk about classical liberals, like, but fair enough. Yes. In the classical sense, this is liberals. I do. I, I, uh, I think there is like, uh, there is a whole like tradition, right? We sometimes forget uh, that is still, still exists today of liberals who lean more uh, on the right or just not really necessarily progressive, right? Who, uh, yes. I'm, well, if he, if he, I'm, we call cancel culture yeah. liberal, right? And it's like fundamentally very opposed to a lot of the founders of liberalism. Yeah, J.S. Mill and John Locke would not approve. Yeah, absolutely not. And fair enough. Uh, I'm using the term in the colloquial American register. And I always insist on using the vulgar colloquial standard American English register, not the niche leftist, communist, uh, branded identity thing that I understand you need to honor because you actually have a, a mission here. But from my standpoint, it's like, I want to be intelligible to just like to my family and friends and coworkers. And so, but okay, let's call them progressives for the rest of the conversation. The reason I wasn't doing that was because progressivism does kind of develop in the 20th century more than it was say, in the 19th. But, you know, there's proto-progressivism. W.E.B. Du Bois comes out of it with his talented 10th essay, very controversial today. It's from his most conservative face, which I still think he's onto something. He's, I mean, I, I think he's a little racially essentialist when he goes about it, but he's basically just saying like, look, every race has its top 10% of achievers, of intellectuals, whatever. We need to elevate those people. We need to get those people into college. And we need to equip them to be able to lead their race up. And it's very evolutionist when he does this. He's basically saying like, to evolve, my people actually need this. Like that's the way he talks and that's why it's kind of cringe and that's why people have problems with it. Uh, but that's one of these uh, proto-progressive pieces that was written in this era. But uh, his arguments with Booker T. Washington at the time are coming out of this a uh, hyper-racist period, which was the betrayal of Reconstruction, right? Booker T. Washington was essentially saying, well, we just need to teach people business, good business. We'll teach them how to read so that they can do business. And then once, once people can do business, they can get out of their poverty situation. And W.E.B. Du Bois comes along and says, the real, situ the real solution here, guys, is actually to take the top 10% of Black people and get them into college and then equip them to be community leaders which is true. I think he's being a realist at the time, but also, obviously, this is the proto-progressivist PMC vision. So Du Bois, Charles Winslow Taylor, Edward Bernays, if you read these guys, they are, they're not just saying, oh, hey, we need professionals and managers to do this thing. They're selling themselves to capitalists as the ones who can bring 
interclass harmony or sorry, intra-class harmony, right? Not inter, but intra-class harmony. They bring inter-class division, but they bring intra, which is to say between classes, harmony. That was their whole mission all along. Now, of course, uh, Du Bois became a socialist later on, but that's kind of separate from where I was going with this. The reason I brought up the whole uh, Judith Stein essay is to say that when Charles Winslow Taylor drops this piece and opens it up by saying that this can bring harmony between the classes, this is in the aftermath of the Farmers Alliance and the Populist Party in the 19th century, which, as Edith Stein show, Judith Stein shows, was the cause uh, or the major reason that the Democrats and Republicans both joined forces in betraying Reconstruction and trying to polarize people with, with reinstitutionalizing racism in all kinds of ways that ultimately culminated in the Jim Crow era. So nowadays people want to talk about, oh, it's just whiteness and just white people and this and that and the other. But the, what they're leaving out of the picture is the role of the PMC, Democrats and Republicans for 30 years trying to crush working class resistance in the United States. And obviously that was largely inspired by these struggles in Europe. And so, yeah, I'm just trying to add the context to the Taylor piece. And then I also agree with Charles Winslow Taylor in the same way that Lenin did, ultimately. Lenin also liked Taylorism because it's efficient. It, create, it, it, it turns most jobs into something that is so idiot-proof. Marx saw that this, there was this ten, tendency to simplify the, the labor kind of process, right? But what, Taylor takes it to a whole nother level, right? And I actually think that's good. I want idiot-proof work so that we can all work less. Automation can work more. We can free up our time, energy, et cetera. Sure. But what I don't like is when Taylorism enters the discursive space, which is what happens when people say, I'm not here to educate you, but you have to toe the line. Go do it yourself, but you have to come to the same conclusions as me. This is the stay in your lane discourse. This is the, I read some books on this and you didn't, so shut up and sit down discourse, right? And ultimately, I think there's something to that as well. But you get a lot of know-it-all people who come into spaces, but they haven't actually done any of the research on any of the things that are uh, uh, the, the actual subject matter, right? Related to the subject matter. So I get it, but that's not good marketing, branding, optics, it's just a bad approach. And because the left has kind of embraced this PMC identity uh, over the last hundred years, I think it is destined to lose. And so that's where I want to bring it back to. There is a difference between a Republican PMC and Democrat PMC. And I'm just going to go with the colloquial difference here and say there are conservatives and liberals in America. Okay. And not all of them are Republicans or Democrats. But let's go back to just calling them Republicans and Democrats and speak somewhat loosely here. And this gets more complicated by neoliberalism because obviously neoliberalism allows Democrats to kind of come off pretty conservative, right? Like in this actual uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps sort of way that Bill Clinton popularized, right? But the difference between Republican PMC and Democrat PMC is for the most part, Republicans got a memo over a hundred years ago that said, there's been a managerial revolution. Workers don't like it. That was because of James Burnham. They got that memo. Now, William F. Buckley and all of, the, all of his satellites at the National Review, 
loved James Burnham, as well as a lot of these other Trotskyist or Stalinist defectors who were becoming neoconservatives. Okay, that period is when conservatives internalized a lesson, which was, yes, we need to own our role as enlightened leaders, representatives, but we can't wag our finger at people and we can't tell them that we're doing that. Our job is actually to kind of keep the petty bourgeois American dream alive. And so there is this difference between PMC and petty bourgeois that I think Elton is probably set to speak on. But the difference is, uh, it's not that the one side is that the Republicans are petty bourgeois and Democrats are PMC. No, they're all PMC. All government workers are PMC. All politicians are PMC. All media people, activists, professors, students, they're all ultimately PMC. That's not the point. There's a way of, be, of operating in the mode, right? I, in my book, I talk about it as the difference between Robin D'Angelo and Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan doesn't act PMC, though he is. Robin D'Angelo acts PMC, and she is, and she doesn't care. The thing is, is like, for the people who want to appeal to workers or to those workers who are falling through the cracks the Democrats don't care about, usually white ones, what, what you have is, this kind of like, oh, my job as a Republican PMC is to tell you that you as a worker have more in common with the small business owner and the small business owner has more in common with the capitalist. Drawing that comparison is their job. The Democrat PMC's job is to say, you actually have more in common with Barack Obama and Jay-Z if you're a working class black guy than you do with other workers at your warehouse. So both sides try to establish a certain kind of uh, uh, analogy between the low and, and harmony between the lower and the upper, but they go about it different ways. Is that really working? That's one thing I wanted to ask because uh, I know you talk a lot about discursive Taylorism in, in that piece you wrote in Underground Theory called Lefter Than Thou, which is why I wanted to even do this podcast. I was just, that's how it kind of it kind of put me onto Bar Barbara Ehrenreich. And I'd heard of her before, but I didn't really want to explore her work till then. And that, that's a great piece. Those definitely, ch uh, those who pick up underground theory should check that out. But I mean, you, this idea of Taylorism is sort of a, what Marxists often call class collaborationism. There's sort of an agenda facilitated by liberals, social democrats, and even fascists who is part of the fascist project, class collaborationism. But I mean, in many ways, this kind of seems to not be working, but maybe it is because the idea of building harmony between the classes, I mean, it seems like a lot of politics today is driven by and large as a backlash in response to this whole PMC politics, mostly by the right, primarily. But I mean, one could say a lot of Trumpism, uh, driven by many things, but one, a lot of Trumpism seems like a, the backlash exactly to that kind of politics, to Hillary Clinton and uh, condemning the deplorables and so on. And I know, uh, I know we're going to get right into the petite bourgeoisie and uh, the PMC, which I think Elton's equipped to go on. But I, I maybe just uh, regarding that, because you say this is its objective is to sort of maintain class structures, but is that backfiring or is that playing into another controlled opposition for the right wing PMC? It's, I think it's a dodgy question. It's hard to tell. I'm not sure. What do you guys think? The, so the question is like, 
essentially the left has become significantly PMC. Well, at least, yeah, in American politics through, uh, through the yeah, yeah. 20th century. Canada. What's that? Yeah. Definitely in Canada. Totally. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I would say even more so. Okay. Day. Yeah. I guess I've, I have uh, picked up on that. And yeah. So then has that worked? I mean, on, I think that the quote that I read at the beginning that, uh, without from the Aaron Reich's essay, without a mass working class left, only the most marginal of social reforms as possible is kind of the, the center of it. Cause I, so the assumption there is that when we're talking about the left becoming like a PMC movement, really what we're saying is that there's a whole lot of people in the population who are not supporting the left or the party. So, I mean, let's just speak in specifics. So like in, in America with the democratic party, obviously the goal is to get just slightly more than 50% for whatever presidential candidate. Uh, but we know that a significant portion of the country isn't voting that kind of stuff. It's because there's a PMC community, especially after the eighties that needs to be mobilized to vote, but the mass, the majority, how do I say it is like more people don't vote than do vote for Republican or Democrat. And the Bernie Sanders campaign was of course arguing that he needed to go campaign in all 50 states, for example, which is to say that he doesn't need to just go to the places where you've basically the big cities where the PMC lives and can get, but yeah, he wanted to get everybody on board. So I'm just articulating kind of like some of the practical aspects of it. But again, the question of like, is it working? And I think like, that's like an extremely obvious, like, of course it's not working. And when I say that it's because it wasn't partially is because it wasn't obvious to me 10 years ago, for example, that sure it wasn't working, but if we just keep pushing a little bit harder, we'll figure out how to make this strategy work. And I say that because I think I was kind of brought into the PMC left. And even when I was disaffected with Obama, I thought that there may be some way that we can engage people not kind of realizing how insulting it was to just be focusing on, I guess, what I would now call identity politics or something like that. And when Trump started running for president, I just didn't think that it, like, I thought we lived in the kind of society where somebody like him wouldn't be taken seriously. And obviously I was wrong, just as many people were. And I think that's, that was kind of like the thing when I started to recognize, like, maybe, I mean, I say this, like, I could find many things that I uh, did 20 years ago that, that kind of align with my politics today. But 
when uh realized that whatever Trump was doing was working that was appealing to something that previously was asleep or something like that. I think that's when it registered to me that like needed to have a new paradigm to be able to explain this. And then kind of that's when a number of jumps eventually got to Barbara Ehrenreich and became like honestly pretty obsessed with her reading reading quite a bit. There's a ton that I haven't read yet, but I think that she obviously was uh, clued into what these problems were with the PMC long before the majority of us were. Yeah, we kind of, we've been well into a direction which I wanted to go in, which is the history of the PMC and its thought. And in the syllabus, we're in this course you did on, on the PMC, you, you start with uh, somebody you mentioned already, James Burnham's The Managerial Revolution, followed by uh, Thomas Frank's Listen Liberal, and we go to more modern theorists like Catherine Liu and ver various other people. But uh, I think James Burnham is worth addressing because someone's probably already typed in the comments. CIA, Trotskyist, I don't know, was he not a CIA-funded academic? I mean, is that not worth uh, addressing? But it, it's a very famous book, The Managerial Revolution. Why'd you guys choose that one? Why is it important? And why, why'd you choose uh, other ones like Thomas Frank's Listen Liberal? Of course, Thomas Frank's writing more from a right-wing perspective. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You say Thomas Frank's writing from a right-wing perspective? Uh, Listen Liberal, I mean, not like right-wing, but it's definitely, he's on, he's, is he not on the right? Like not like at far. No, he's a liberal. No, he's like an American liberal. Yeah. And I mean like, when I say I mean, he's like a Democrat, yeah. Yeah, yeah I he's, thought, he's Democrat. I always thought he was like a Fukuyama type of figure, like a, a I guess if we were to be specific, like a right liberal, I guess. More interested in like the history mm -hmm. of the American populist movement. Right. Okay. So yeah, but I mean, regardless of his identity, I care yeah. more just like about what he has to say. Uh, so yeah, I guess James For Burnham sure. and Thomas Frank. Why do you choose them? to teach. So I'll, yeah, go I'll, ahead. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, so I'll just say quickly that uh, I was the one who wanted you to do Burnham, and that's because I've been interested in the main uh, influences for exit from the left. So if I was to put together a post-left reader who would go into it, and I'm not saying that I want to put that together because I want people to be, all become post-left or leave the left or, or whatever. It, it's because uh, there is a, now a tradition that goes back at least as far as him that is of people who were these uh, true believers in some sense. And then they something happened, probably a series of things happened. They lost faith. They burnt out. They became disenfranchised. And they realized that not only was the movement they were a part of what they thought it was, but it was also now the worse evil. Like, and that they, and so for Burnham, the lesser evil became the it's United the States. Con pipeline, right? It's exactly, yeah. And for him, uh, the United States became the lesser evil. And if the United States is the lesser evil from your position, and uh, there are existential uh, things on the, uh, at stake. So for instance, uh, World War II, uh, 
uh, I, was it World War II yet? I forget exactly what point he's writing in, but 1941 think, is managerial revolution, right? So that's like yeah, I thought he was just more anti-Soviet, like he was kind of a cold warrior. Oh, he's super anti-Soviet, but he also is saying that uh, it, the real reason leftists hate him uh, beyond the other ones that are obvious is that he does do this thing where he says, look, fascism, liberalism, communism, I don't care what you call it. What's really going on in all three cases is the managerial revolution. And I think he's got a very convincing case there. Mm. But setting that aside, I think that uh, I, don't, I, I don't think that the, the CIA is able to just find some hack and then get that person to write a piece that remains uh, as relevant today as it was at the time. Right, like the, a piece that uh, like that good, like that uh, if that work is very good. Uh, you you should argue with it. You should read it and engage with it and argue with it. But also, it's uh, it's relevant. It's continued relevance, and the fact that it is so good speaks to that his defecting wasn't just an opportunistic thing. It comes from a genuine realization that the movement he was a part of was not what he thought it was, and that the theory had it really taken into account this thing, which was the managerial revolution. Yeah, and I just would add that I think like what the Ehrenreichs talk about where they're essentially talking about kind of the economics behind and the class divisions that create the PMC, that ideologically are trying to create class harmony, but they're solve it they're i'm trying to remember specifics but essentially they're like creating their own institutions that put them in conflict with the uh, working class and help reproduce the liberal kind of welfare state in uh, a way that essentially establishes their uh hegemony and i think that what James Burnham is talking about is, is that same process. And of course, he is writing decades earlier and is coming to some different conclusions and then even making some predictions that uh, are embarrassing shortly after. But there's still a ton of con content there. And I think it's even significant that, of course, since he does have that Marxist background, you can see a lot of his analysis still being, I think, useful uh, for Marxists today, just the structures he's recognizing in society. And when you brought up uh, Burnham, oh yeah, you were just asking kind of like, how did we choose the texts that we did? Yeah, um, like what, how do they inform our view of the PMC and the way we understand it? For me, I think just concisely is just like that there's lots of different aspects there. And I don't think that we've gotten even anywhere close as to like understanding all the different domains that can be analyzed. Like my essay in the uh, underground theory. And then also I made just a small reference, but we had uh, Angela Nagel in the curriculum as well. She wrote a, an essay and, and then in my essay, I, I referenced uh, Mark Fisher as well. And I can't remember 
I apologize where I was going with that, except for just that it's clear that there's lots of different aspects of the PMC, like in Mark Fisher in particular and Angela Nagel, they specifically focus on like academia, the NGOs and uh, forgive me, I can't remember what the third group was, but the point is it's just like a subdivision within the PMC and help. Or the media. And, media oh, class. The media. Yeah. And honestly, like most of the time when we're talking about PMC, especially as a slur, that's the group that we're talking about. There's a whole bunch of other people who are PMC that are existing in other domains and have other ideological holds and values. Yeah. Because who cares if the engineer of a bridge is a specialist in his field or mm -hmm. her field? I don't, who cares? The point is it becomes a problem as soon as it gets into politics, as soon as it gets into media, as soon as it gets, if you're teaching some specialists like chemical uh, chemistry, or something like that. Like, yeah, for sure, man. All the way. It becomes an issue when it gets political and especially when it comes into relation with labor. And then I think one of the ways of saying what we're trying to get at here is that you have Burnham, you have Frank, you have Nagel, you have Lou, all these different people. The point was to bring people from a lot of different perspectives because they've got their own reasons for being burnt out disillusioned. They got their own reasons for saying, you know what, the left thinks it's doing this one thing, it's doing something else. They got their different reasons for it. And then they have their different kinds of solutions that they come to. But ultimately, they all have an analysis of a new phenomenon. And it has a structural and historical development and different people are able to talk about it in different ways. And I think the dialectical thing is to try to assess those different positions and then work through those contradictions. And so I wanted to read my favorite quote from listen liberal uh so you get a sense for his voice and his kind of approach so he says so why protest their triumph and he's talking about the triumph of the pmc within uh the uh, the democratic party he said why protest their triumph why would a person of vivid pink sentiments like me object to the ascendancy of any liberal group what difference does it make if the driving force behind democratic victory comes from below or from on high? And then he, this is the piece. He puts it in, he says, put it a different way. What does it mean when the dominant constituency of the left party in a two-party system is a high status group rather than the traditional working class? That's ultimately the question that I think motivates everything he does. And at the end of the day, he's just a normie Democrat. I have to be clear. He is a normie Democrat with stars in his eyes who thinks that there was a time when that like, was Democrat. Ask that because uh, I can't really see that where like the Democrats were ever really a working class party. But I mean, it's still true. I think it's more true in Canada because in Canada, if this was purely a liberal phenomenon, a center left phenomenon, then it wouldn't just be the conservative and liberal party of Canada who adopted PMC mentality, but I see the NDP, which is our social democrat party. It's totally has that kind of rhetoric. I mean, it's uh, very it, it avoids uh, a class perspective. It tends to, may, as opposed to making material arguments, and makes comments that are tend to be uh, about regarding consciousness and uh, 
like I'll give an example. Like there's the People's Party got very big in Canada, which is a sort of very right wing populist libertarian, but definitely like I will say the leader did have racist beliefs. Like it wasn't overt, but it, you could see it if it walks like a duck. But their the response to him was just to kind of deplatform, try to deplatform him and to call to say he shouldn't even speak because he's a racist. And although that might be true, like you said, this is the worst optics ever. It's the worst branding for a left movement that wants to appeal to that constituency, which uh, that th those type of Trumpian figures are seemingly able to appeal to, right? And, and in a certain sense, it seems like the PMC and its so-called infiltration of the left is more or less a reproduction of a controlled opposition or a contained opposition, as, as I like to call it, because not really controlled but what i would do want to circle this back to is because you brought up the the most contentious part of this whole debate is the post-left aspect because some people think that this is just a something exclusive to post-leftists but of course you guys go over left and post-left perspectives i think that's important maybe to like distinguish as to where those authors you mentioned are coming from the likes of Catherine Liu and in her conclusion to virtue hoarders she calls for a more Marxian type of socialism. Uh, Angela Nagel, on the other hand, I can't really speak for her views, but it always strikes me as a more conservative social democrat who's more kind of a, does, it's pretty much like not a left, just abandoned a sort of left project. And uh, I guess, yeah, how would you guys distinguish these different perspectives when it comes to uh, the post-left? Because it, it's easy to say like, oh, well, there's just these different perspectives, but I mean, where do you guys fit into all this? What do you guys think is the right uh, approach to this? Because uh, it does change the way we go about this whole thing, no? Uh, what does this mean for a future politics? Because if this is diluting a class politics or something, or if it's dil diluting, or, or this one just doesn't like, uh, like this PMC leftism for other reasons, right? I think it's important to draw that, or else one can easily be just lumped in in this category of, post-left or populist whatever and it avoids a confrontation and i see that there's some people who will see probably this podcast title and think that it's like some kind of uh this is a red scare whatever and there's people who do think in that very one-dimensional frame so i it might be obvious to you guys like why this might be a stupid question but i think it's, it's probably important to grapple with uh it's like these different perspectives and differentiating them and where you guys tend to lean more on them and i'm i know you guys have my slightly different perspectives on this so i'd be curious to hear yeah do you want to go first go go ahead and kind of talk about our the, the roles we played and and kind of approaches yeah yeah so I mean, just to, yeah, just to be clear that I'm a member of Democratic Socialists of America and am definitely coming at it from that uh, perspective. And, and almost honestly, before the class, almost all of my exposure to it was from within that framework, just reading, like, especially like Gramsci, for example. I kind of first started to understand the significance of the PMC. And of course, he's not using that term, but he's talking about 
their role in society and hegemony and of the capitalist class. And then, and then reading Barbara Ehrenreich. So she was actually one of the founding members of the Democratic Socialists of America. She did that, I think, for, she was like a co-chair or something like that for eight years, I think, from 80 to 88 or something like that. And I could have some details off, but the point is that she was a significant person in, within the left, within the socialist left. She left DSA, and I can't remember why. I know she was frustrated. I, I mean, the original essays of of her and, and her ex-husbands were fundamentally trying to persuade the PMC left to essentially collaborate with the working class, which is, of course, a, a different understanding of that term and the way it gets used today. Uh, but it's explicit, like right from the very beginning of the first essay, the second essay is about the new left that her and her husband kind of grew up in. And that new left basically came into existence as the, the, the children of basically just as a bunch of people went to college uh, from the working class that they hadn't before. And they, of course, were there uh, participating in the social justice movements that were happening. And it was incorporating um, people from the working class, but it's significantly centered around, of course, race and, and feminism and different things that we think of as identity politics. And the Port Huron statement gets called out as a specific example where the left was saying, the working class is failing in these ways. The working class has racist tendencies and this and that. And so it became a PMC movement distance from the working class. And Barbara Ehrenreich was, I think, and John Ehrenreich were writing these essays trying to say that the history of the PMC has been ignored. We need to understand kind of the economic foundation of why the PMC exists and recognize kind of like that the PMC has come into existence at the cost and suffering of the working class and needs to actively reunite with the working class in order to get anything done that needs to get done. Yeah. And, and then just, Real quick, so with all of that, I know Dave has been quite frustrated with uh, Democratic Socialists of America and lots of other kinds of leftists. And so on some level, us doing the class together was to kind of engage where some of that, those uh, disagreements needed to be discussed. Not that we went into too much detail, but then Bringing in Angela Nagel and um, James Burnham gave us opportunity to kind of flesh out, like, there, there's a lot that they're talking about that's completely justified. It doesn't mean that you have to 
go with them all of the way with with their critique or take it in the direction that they go, et cetera. Yeah. And I was uh, explicitly holding the position of a representative of the post left in a very ironic um, yeah, that's right. sense. And the, the why it's ironic is because I'm pretty much post identity as well as post representation. And so here I am identifying as the representative. I think I said, I'll be the Pope of the post left in this, in these conversations. And the reason I get to do that is because there is no movement. There is no organization. You cannot find a group. All people say is red scare as if this fucking random podcast that nobody fucking listens to defines some kind of a broad tendency that has any kind of real political potential. It's like what really pisses people off is that a podcast that was leftist, uh, I believe at least one, if not both of them, like uh, gravitated away from being so gung-ho about the left, but that I think they become the sort of the example. And I've never listened to a single podcast. I've never listened to it. One yeah. episode that, sorry, what happened? No, I said me neither. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah, I never no, listened to them. Like anti-identity. It's just, but it is a thing that people use to describe a set of characteristics ranging from. It's basically like to describe burned-out dirtbag leftists, or who kind of abandoned the leftists part of the dirtbag leftist. I guess that's yeah. like the category people think of. No, and I think it's. I think that the tendency to blame the disenfranchised is the very thing that is the reason that they alienated their base during the 2019 to 2020 Bernie election or, or sorry, a campaign like the primary campaign. And it, when I say they alienated their base, I mean the left media heads. I'm talking about the, uh, the majority report, the young Turks, just like people like that. Uh, people like, like Vosh, like ultimately what they did in that period was get really fucking loud about shaming disenfranchised people. And then as people for not saw, oh, Biden, is that what you're referring to? Uh, well, no, during, well, during the, the Bernie campaign before it burnt out, when it looked like it actually had a shot because it was winning right. those first few states, there was just a lot of like around back then. Uh, he was, and he was calling himself a populist for a hot minute. Yeah. Walked that back. He changed that tune about it the moment Bernie dropped out. And then he started just, he got on this bandwagon of, of shaming people. So he doesn't just come out of nowhere with hundreds of thousands of subscribers. There was about a year of his development where he was the dirtbag populist guy. And then he became like the anti-disenfranchised person, uh, like the person who doesn't feel represented by the voting system. That his like gung-ho pro-Biden stuff comes uh, right from that period. And I remember just being like, oh my God, like seeing that, that character arc. I was, and I tried to debate him actually I, because I, he kept trying to, he, he was just ridicule and mock uh, people who weren't going to vote for Biden. And I, I wanted to debate him on the position that you, you can't go calling yourself uh, a Bernie populist and then flip around on this and then actually shame people for not feeling represented by the system. That. 
yeah and then he uh he was like oh uh, i've talked enough about this i would i'm not going to talk to anyone else about this until after the elections and it was like cool man yeah the people you keep talking to are randos from your chat not with a not a person with a master's degree in critical theory who's also like in the same uh, close enough in the same scene as you so that's kind of when i realized i don't care about that but the I'll, let's go back to this so you said dirt burnt out dirt bags I would also throw in those Pat Socks and mega communists, right? You're describing your stance on the on like how would the direction you take your interpretation of the PMC and the direction you take it in, because of course there's these different perspectives and and all that, and um, yeah, it can change it because I mean people can hate the PMC for different reasons, right? Some people can <laughs> hate the virtue signaling because it's not real and it's token gesturing and some people might hate it because they actually side very right wing on those issues. And there's, there, there are like, it, there are differences. I mean, there is, there's a meme, not to derail a serious conversation, but I mean, this YouTuber J has this great skit where it's like, I'm against identity politics. And the other person says me too. Yeah. Don't you hate how it just dilutes class consciousness. And then the other person just starts like yelling, like slurs. And it's like, oh, I thought we were on the same side. And I guess there, there is something to that. Uh, there is something to that, that is, uh, and I guess that's where like the hypochondriac anti-post left people think anyone who touches these issues could become like that. And I guess that's why I asked the question. Yeah, I think they see a, a sort of pipeline into that and fair enough, but I also see a pipeline into co-opting every potential actual movement on the part of the people who disavow any kind of class resentment and just call it populism or, or conspiracy theorists or whatever, right? So like, okay, but I wanted to go back to Pat Sox and mega communists and dirtbag leftists. These are three different things. And I've not made a serious research effort to get to the bottom of them. I've not, what, I've never listened to episodes of any of the podcasts that are associated with these. I don't take, that whole thing very seriously. Okay. The reason I've had to tune into it at all is because people were calling me that. People were calling, oh, well, the thing you said is kind of like the Pat socks, or the thing you said is kind of like these mega communists, or the thing you said is kind of like these post-left people. And so I had to look into it a little bit enough to be like, yeah, but it's different. And here's why it's different. All I'm saying is that there are forever issues that we're supposed to feel represented on in the voting booth. Forever issues like guns, forever issues like abortion, forever issues like homosexuality. And I'm, when I say a forever issue, I mean that anytime that there's a gray area and the, it, science is not going to actually be able to help us because it comes down to something cultural, historic, it, we have epistemological black boxes and people are going to come out different ways on these things. Like for instance, when life begins, Science really can't actually answer it. I know everybody thinks that science can answer it, but it actually can't answer it. And so uh, these kinds of forever issues get obviously super polarized by people who want to only focus on those kinds of issues, who don't want you to think about capitalism, of course, but also just people who straight up hate gay people or straight up uh, think that you're murdering uh, uh, a baby if you have an abortion. So I get the complexity here, but I do think that they are forever issues at least within capitalism. And so what I mean is like, there are issues that are universal and that disproportionately benefit people who are marginalized, right? This is why we don't need intersectional 
stacked, stacked, progressive stack, like kinds of procedures. When we're talking about uh, a universal bill of goods, that's actually going to disproportionately benefit all those people anyway. Right. So uh, for me, I, uh, I see why people go off in those directions uh, with mega communists, like kind of the idea, uh, build the wall, Medicare for all. Why would they say that? Well, if you watched Bernie talking to the Fox News uh, town hall, then you see why. Because that, that people were very enthusiastic about the things that he was saying. But obviously, they don't stand uh, for this, oh, yeah, well, let's just abolish the border and bring everybody in, right? So like, there's actually some potential there. Right. There's there are things like Medicare for all that are pretty much universal, but then things like the wall, it's like, okay, most Americans don't even think that makes sense. But strategically, you every great political mover and shaker has always come along and said, Hey, there's these disparate coalitions. I can find a way to put those together into a coherent vision. And if I think it's too forced and desperate to say, build the wall, Medicare for all though I do think Trump's more likely to give us Medicare for all than Biden. That's just, I mean, that doesn't mean I want him. I don't believe in the political system right now. I'm super burnt out on the whole thing. But the difference between me and a, a post-leftist, a dirtbag burnout or a, a mega communist or a Pat Sog is that they're still invested in identity. They're still invested in just playing the making fun of their enemy game they're still invested in pretty much the same mode that they were before. And uh, the direction I've gone is, I believe, more dialectical. It's a lot more educational. And it says, let's bracket out the question of justice right now and instead prioritize the priorities of truth and understanding, which requires discourse, which requires that we first find a way beyond the genocide of voice that is occurring, which is that people don't feel like they can speak on things that are outside of their lanes. Well, if people don't feel like they can speak outside of their lane, they're not gonna really feel like they can dive in and do the research themselves. And I think that ultimately people need to be hitting the books. People need to be doing research. People need to be having difficult conversations with people from a lot of different viewpoints. And that's why I built Theory Underground. And so there is a side where people say, oh, well, that's just a post-left school or whatever. And it's like, no, it's fucking not. Most of them are leftists, but we do have people who aren't leftists. Guess what? That's not the point. That's not supposed to be the point. If you think that's the point at a university, then that's why the university's already failed. Well, we need to build a coalition, you see, but with without anyone other than the people we agree with. Okay, so the one last thing I wanted to get into, well, I'd hopefully not the last thing, but I think we're running out of time here. So the and I just really wanted to voice this critique, or you could call it a confusion, because I'm not sure if I'm actually confused about Bar Aaron, the Aaron Reich's argument uh, in their essays, because what strikes me in their argument is a sort of class identity. Well, I wouldn't go as far to say that's what they're doing, but it verges on a class identity politics, which is a tendency, which I think is actually so important and understudy that it's actually the biggest lesson of the Cultural Revolution. And uh, I talk about that in my next video. In the Cultural Revolution, the big paradox is for all the anti-revisionist and anti-bourgeois stuff, the people who ended up implementing capitalism were the proletarian faction, people who came from uh, worker and peasant backgrounds. And uh, they took a more conservative stance, whereas a lot of people who are doing these radical rebellions and siding with Mao's more radical agenda came from 
uh, people whose families had previously been part of the high upper classes and had lost what they had, and they took Mao's right to rebel the most seriously. It's a big paradox, uh, or not a paradox in some ways, but it definitely problematizes class identity. That's for sure. And uh, so I just want to full circle on Aaron Wright's argument just to clarify for the audience. They define uh, Barbara Aaron Wright and her husband at the time define the PMC as the professional managerial class is consisting of salary, salaried uh, mental workers who do not own the means of production and whose major function in the social division of labor may be broadly described as the reproduction of capitalist and capitalist class of capitalism and capitalist class relations, uh, capitalist culture and capitalist class relations. And in another part, they say the PMC's objective class interests lie in the overthrow of the capitalist class but not in the triumph of the working class. And their actual attributes, uh, uh, attitudes often mix hostility towards the capitalist class with elitism towards the working class. But as you pointed out before, they kind of are trying to change the PMC in a way that makes them unite with the working class. But if they have these diametrically opposed interests from a, taking that literally, I mean, wouldn't that be a futile project? Now, I would disagree with this kind of framing because I don't, place as big of an emphasis on, I think there's political struggle and class struggle are often different things. They're not always the same thing. But I mean, am I understanding their argument correctly? Because if they do want to the PMC to kind of have a more, be more in touch with the working class, but they're saying they have these objective interests that are at odds with them. I mean, to me, like I, I come out of reading their argument thinking that there isn't really a redeeming quality in the PMC. So I don't know, what, what, how, how do you guys approach that and how do you guys understand that argument or broader critique? So I think that uh, you're right that there's something that is a little bit suspect there. And I think that uh, what they're talking about is an ob objective class interest that uh, that creates a conflict between the working class and the PMC is something that we could just say is like every other class where um, you're just going to have internal class division. So like within the capitalist class, like an obvious case in America is just the conservatives versus liberals, the Republicans versus Democrats, like they're both capitalist but within the capitalist class, but they disagree with each other. They're fighting for power within that structure. With what the Ehrenreichs are talking about in the PMC is that the PMC is fighting for power, essentially fighting for resources and social clout and economic clout that they gain by getting on the good side of the capitalist class and by proving their value by becoming experts on certain things and then create they uh, reproduce that power over time and create essentially positions for their children uh, by establishing institutions really like getting funding, further funding for colleges, for creating institutions like 
society for engineers or, or whatever. All of those things are uh, elements of class war where they're establishing their power, dis distancing themselves from the working class. And so then when the, uh, Barbara Ehrenreich wrote her book, Fear of Falling, she's specifically talking about how that's a, the, what the fear of falling is, the fear of the PMC falling back into the working class and that it's a, a tenuous place to be. There's no kind of like firm definition that keeps them. They stay in that position through essentially like the capitalists continuing to fund the existence of the PMC, which is to say creating those jobs, paying taxes, that kind of stuff. Obviously, since the Reagan revolution, taxes have gone, uh, have tried to be reduced, the size of government's reduced, uh, academia has been demonized, uh, all kinds of uh, white-collar jobs now are being shipped overseas, that kind of stuff. So one thing that's interesting is that the Ehrenreichs actually published a third essay, even though they were divorced in 2013 after Occupy Wall Street. They wrote over Occupy essay. Wall Street. What? No what that? What'd you say? Over Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. It you was, said the divorce after Occupy Wall Street. That's painting a picture in my head. Oh, oh <laughs> no, sorry. I apologize. <laughs> they divorced like in the 70s, I think. Uh, uh, they came back together to write the essay in 2013. I think they remained friends for the rest of their lives kind of thing. Uh, no, it was not over Occupy. But the their essay was called Death of a Yuppie Dream. And it's interesting because in that, they're basically saying, yeah, that they're kind of recognizing that the PMC on some level is like shrinking, uh, like more people go to college, but the, what a college degree means is changing. Some of that is because like now to, to like become a hotel manager, you need to get a college degree, uh, as an example. And then I want to go off, wrap up by going back to fear of falling, what's interesting at the very end of fear of falling is that, oh, I apologize. Death of the Vyuppie dream, basically saying, okay, like it's kind of fun to watch the PMC suffer. She's basically, they're basically saying like, it, this is great. It's time now for the PMC to like recognize that their welfare is dependent upon, um, the working class and that kind of like they're obligated to collaborate and kind of own their sins. And she's, they're both pretty cynical about whether that's actually going to happen. And, and that's justified, of course, like for starters, yeah, there's Occupy Wall Street and, and we're seeing like a little bit of change at that point. But like the reality is like, it's going to be a slow, brutal process. It's not going to just like change over night if it's ever going to happen i mean for starters they released their essays in this in 1977 and like nobody listened or paid attention which although i will say that people read it like i have a comrade in in dsa uh like i've talked to a number of people who remember oh that they did read barbara ehrenreich's essay like 
the time. So it was like known, but it didn't have a big influence. Okay. And then the, I was wrapping up just at the end of fear of falling. It's interesting. She basically proposes like, if you, if the middle class, if the PMC wants to like overcome their fear of falling or address their fear that their children aren't going to have it as good as they did. Uh, the way that they do that is by essentially creating a society where everybody is middle class. She doesn't say PMC, but like everybody's middle class where there is no class antagonism between the working class and the PMC, but instead like that instead of creating like a college degree, there's something where it's like, once you've proven your discipline, now you get, you deserve to have a quality life. Instead, they propose creating a society where, you know, essentially like, uh, I'd, I'd imagine like some kind of like more, I guess basically she's saying like, we need to have education which allows people to pursue kind of like what's important to them and what they value, but isn't like exclusively like a, a focus on discipline and distinguishing like who are the deserving uh, against the undeserving. So, okay. So I half answered your question, half went in a uh, different direction, but I hope that helps. And I think Dave was going to respond as well. I could reiterate it yeah. just so like if, so Dave can go for it because you kind of stepped out, Ronos. It was just bait and rolling class identity. class identity. Yeah, identity. no, I can hear it. Yeah. Class id pool is a very serious problem and it's, it, I feel implicated by it to some degree because I think having always felt like, okay, well, as like the white dude, I've got nothing to like, I've got nothing in these spaces that are all about id pull. In fact, my entire job is to just shut up and nod. And that doesn't work well for me. I don't like shutting up. I also like conversation. It's not just to hear myself speak. I do like to have, I like to understand things and I don't just like to take things on authority, but uh, a combination of Marx and then actually seeing Bernie uh, speaking directly to the working class, like the, the combination of those, like reading strange labor and wage labor capital in college. And then seeing Bernie talking to working class people, I was like, I felt very seen for the first time, right? Just to use the language of the PMC today. I felt so seen. And I was like, oh my God, this is great. And it, I th that got me at the level of identity. Of course, just as with all uh, forms of oppression, it's not just identity. It is literally your life, right? So whether you're black or queer or uh, a woman, it doesn't matter. Like your, this is your identity to some degree. It's a choice, right? Like you can identify with uh, liking spaghetti and hating uh, salad. I don't know. I'm just throwing random things out there. You can identify with all kinds of stuff, but when it comes to something immutable and that you're stuck in, like your skin or your sex, when you're stuck in it and, and the entire system is set up in such a way that you're treated a certain way and you don't like, that's real shit. And so though I hate identity politics, I don't have a problem with people being like, yeah, well, I'm a woman or I'm a black man or I'm a, what? It doesn't matter. The, I don't hate on that, 
Like that is a part of you. That's a part of you that you have to exist in. What makes it id pool is when people try to say, well, because of my standpoint in this identity, I have the right to speak on certain things that other people don't have a right to speak on. And I have some kind of like deep wisdom that other people don't have. And if somebody who looks like me or like shares my identity category uh, happens to disagree with me, then they're actually just an Uncle Tom or they've internalized the oppressor or whatever, right? So that whole thing is discursive Taylorism. That whole thing is obviously a big part of the PMC. And that ultimately is a, it's a, it, it shuts down dialogue. It creates the genocide of voice. Setting that aside though, yeah, I think I, I got swept up in workerism at some point there. And at some other point along the way, I realized this is just working class identity politics. That's a problem. And that created a real issue for me. And where it's gotten to now is that I've had this realization, thankfully, uh, in part due to Andre Gores, that there is a division within the working class between those who find pride in their job and those who hate their job. Those who want a life outside of their job and those who ultimately like, oh yeah, I'm a really good worker that like forms their identity. And I do think that uh, a naive uh, response to these problems with this anti-working class PMC turn with the left, especially in the United States, is to say, oh, okay, we'll just start putting worker into sentences more often. We'll start saying, hey, there's these guys, I was talking to some guy on the campaign trail and he had dirt under his fingernails and my God, that guy lives behind a shop co somewhere. And it's like, okay, shut the fuck up. We don't care about that. The point is that we don't want to have to spend our whole lives at work. The point is that we want to be able to have lives, have relationships, develop our skills and capacities and do so outside of the commodity form and do it outside of consumerism and be able to actually just do things, right? That's what my book, Time Energy is ultimately about. And so uh, this uh, sort of, uh, workerist populist response, which Trump can do just as well as anyone else, really at a certain level. It it speaks to those who want to make an identity out of being a worker. Uh, and that's the workerism thing. And on the other side of that is anti-work, right? A lot of workers are on the anti-work uh, anti uh, game. But the problem is that anti-work is also dominated, especially online, by uh, people who have never really worked don't really want to ever work, kind of disdain work, think that you're an idiot if you go to work. And that's also problematic. So I don't like workerism. I don't like anti-work. I think that both are problematic, but both of them are getting at something important. And so for the worker, the workerist worker, the important thing that they're getting at is you do make society go around and you don't get what what's due back right like it's not, like the, the the society is unfair. You it all pre, everything that happens uh, presupposes you working in the background, being a good little minion. Uh, and that sucks. And that should be changed. And part of the change might be some kind of acknowledgement. But obviously, that's, I honestly, personally, I would rather say, let's dispense with any kinds of acknowledgements. Let's dispense with resurrecting big old statues of workers. Let's dispense with all of the symbolic bullshit and just change the way society functions so that people have the time and energy for their families, for their loved ones, for a life outside of work. Like, let's just do that.
And on the anti-work side, it's like, yeah, at this certain level, the person who is saying, well, you're a dupe, you're a stupid dupe if you go along with that workerist thing, they're right. At, uh, there are like workers at my Amazon warehouse where I work who get upset when the tread, when the actual conveyor belt stops because they're like busting their asses, working way harder than they need to. And then the, the conveyor belt stops and they'll go, oh, like they're thrown off of their thing. And it's like, buddy, I, don't, I hate to break it to you, but you're not getting paid piece rate. This is an hourly job. Free your mind from work. Listen to audiobooks or podcasts on an earbud. It might be against the rules, but you can hide it under your beanie like I do. Stop simping so hard that you literally get upset the moment you get thrown out of working way too hard, way too fast all fucking day. So, uh, yeah, there is this tension and it's interesting because at the previous warehouse that I worked at, I tried my best to be in the top five workers at that warehouse because I'm writing a book about this and I wanted to have one of my stints at Amazon be where I'm kicking ass. And then this is, I'm on the stint right now where I'm doing the thing that most Amazonians do, which is just chilling. I walk between places. I'm not running, bust in a sweat and I don't care too much. And uh, I mean, that is, Look, I get it. At a certain level, time goes by faster when you work faster. And people want time to go by faster so they can get on to the rest of their life. But if you live this way, it's hard to break out of that mode. And then you're that way all of the time. And so that's the problem. And that's why I just think you got to free your mind from work, disassociate from the, the, the mundane, idiot-proof labor that you're doing, disassociate from it by listening to intellectual things. That's what I advocate for. I talk to every worker I work alongside about that. I started a podcast called Workers of Amazon. Uh, I just did my first interview with somebody and I'm gonna keep doing interviews because you meet really interesting people and you have great conversations when you talk about time energy and critical media theory. And that's my two big things I love to talk to people about. And uh, so anyway, working class id pull, it's a dead end, it's never gonna work. And that is kind of where the post left goes. And it sucks. Brilliant. Yeah. There's a, yeah, I know you, you guys, uh, y'all got to go. We get, we're at the end of uh, our time here. I just want to address one thing to those who think that we kind of forgot. We don't have to get into it because uh, we don't have time to get into it. But one, I want to say my critique of class identity politics isn't so much workerism. Like, I mean, that's like a older critique, of course, but I more mean is the ascribing of certain consciousness on an ID class identity, which can lead to a politics of dismissal, which is only of, of, like the reason for this wokeism is a middle class phenomenon. I, I, and of course, I tend to be more sympathetic to that. It's a mindset because we, it, it can. We think we can fix the problem through more representation when we think in terms of identity, right? If you have more working class representation, whereas we need like, like oh, communist politics, not some. The answer is political. It's not in class, like the class affects the politics, but it isn't the politics itself. And sometimes that gets lost. But the other thing is you kind of said, oh, I understand people who identify with their identities because it's, it's real. It has, even though it's a construct has real effects, but then someone probably is going to be typing saying, well, why aren't you pro intersectionality then? Because they say, oh, there's all these identities. Why don't we just recognize them all? I won't say my critique. We don't have time. It's you could find it in the book uh, "Mistaken Identity" by Assad Haider. I think has the best critique of, of that sort of thinking. Which, if y'all y'all haven't read all, if you guys haven't read it already, definitely check it out. It's up. It's directly up your alley. Honestly, it'd make for a 
good fit on this course, even though he's critical of the uh, PMC discourse a bit, but he has a interesting critique of Idpool. I mean, maybe uh, if we, if you don't have time to answer this question as to why you think intersectionality still is like kind of can fall into PMC thinking, maybe like refer, like would there be any talks you guys did, which you would refer people to look at, but might represent a good critique because I know that it will be a lingering concern because we mentioned it. I kind of had a subtle critique of intersectionality. Both you sort of did, Dave definitely did. So it's, but we didn't really give our adequate critique. I mean, where can people find that? I apologize. I don't feel like I've found, well, I'm still working through that one. I know I I heard an excellent uh, dig episode, uh, the dig episode uh, podcast, but I'll have to go, if it's any use, I'll have to find it and uh, send it to you so you could have it on show notes or something like that. Sure. Okay. My uh, answer is uh, that I don't like the way that intersectionality uh, plays out in activist spaces which is very different from saying that Kimberly Crenshaw uh, and company is doing something sometimes important, like it's arguably like important. It's like at the level of uh, within existing institutions where there are actual like low-key racist laws that aren't obviously racist, for instance, but then they disproportionately impact like a woman or something because of intersectional stack up of like how these things compound against certain people uh, who are at the intersections. Like that's one thing. Now we can set aside the fact that Kimberly Crenshaw was like stabbing Bernie in the back at the moment when it mattered. And so was Judith Butler. And so were so many of these people. And I think the best essay on that, the best thing you can possibly read is the excerpt from I, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get To It by Norman Finkelstein that is in Underground Theory, where he actually, he's got the receipts and he's like referencing them doing this. But like set aside the fact that they are, at the end of the day, like uh, not just liberals, but like these kinds of progressives who really, uh, they don't, they, they, for them, what's radical is uh, inclusion, right? That, well, for them, what's radical is not, like abolishing the working class for them what's radical is making sure that the deserving are able to get out of the working class and be represented in the halls of uh whether congress or or harvard or or what have you right and that is ultimately where intersectionality as well as crt gets its symbolic uh institutional support and power is from harvard and from Kimberly Crenshaw. She is at the intersection of those two fields. And uh, I think that there, there's interesting stuff in the CRT reader, for instance, the one that she put together, the one that Cornell West wrote the preface to. There's actually some really great essays, especially from the earlier stuff, I would say. But let's take it to where I actually have an issue with it, though. It's not the academic side of the question. It's the how it plays out in spaces, which is to say people take their middle school identity politics mentality mode and strategies and then they say oh it's compounded now by people who are at these intersections so we go from stay in your lane 
And th there's this kind of identity category or this other kind of identity category that should be able to speak or have power or, or uh, be in uh, positions of responsibility. And that if we don't see these identities in these positions of responsibility, then uh, we're going to have a problem with that because what we want to see is a, a sort of parity. We want to see a, a, a diversity and inclusion, right? Okay. All the intersectionality does in, at the practical side, I'm not talking in the legal system, but practically is then people go, oh, it's not just that we're, we should be looking at who's in this meeting and saying, oh, there's just not enough black people here. Oh, there's just not enough gay people here. All intersectionality does is it changes that to where people say, there's not enough gay black people here. Okay, that's all it does. So I'm sorry, that's reify that. Yeah. And it does that too. I mean, the reification of the identity is the other thing. Because obviously every radical movement starts out with trying to abolish the category. So well, yeah, reifies identity well. without having a universal equivalent, which is essential to any political movement, I would argue. Which uh, any that actually Zizek wants to change things, yeah. Which seems to be a lot of Zizek's subtle critiques of uh intersectionality and why he still, not, despite not actually believing in the dictatorship of the proletariat, believes in it as an idea because he thinks the proletariat is the universal equivalent to all oppressed struggle, all oppressed people. I actually think it's a very interesting argument he makes in, in defense of lost causes, um, but that's something I, else. I, th I mean, this is at the point of we've gone too far, and I'm going to prove it because I'm going to say that like Mussolini in his What is Fascism piece really lays out, it's an opportunistic grab bag of old power holding contingencies. And then you reify those identities and you put them all in a bag or a bundle and run with that, right? Well, isn't it crazy that this thing that uh, brands itself as intersectionality within activist spaces is the exact same strategy. It's just reversing the terms. It's saying, oh, instead of it being white, instead of it being Catholic, instead of it being... Uh, go down the line. It's going to be black. It's going to be atheist. It's going to be, and you, or peg more likely. And so that it becomes like this, oh, we'll just take all of these super marginalized groups. We'll bundle them all together. And it's like, okay, but there's a reason that worked for fascism at that historical moment. And none of the things that were working for its favor at that time can work in the reverse. If you actually want to change society in some radical way, it's just because it, marginal speaks to the, the the issue that these people are not the majority. They're not even close, right? And so it's like, that's where universalist politics can actually get a bunch of people in the majority too without like demonizing them. It's, it's, it's almost, it's like a great idea. Right, yeah. Yeah, we're uh, obviously running out of time now. So we covered a lot here. And uh, those who uh, enjoyed, got value out of this, I encourage you to give podcast a five-star rating. and. Check out Elton and Dave. I'll put their respective links uh, in the description. Which you can go check out and definitely uh, get a copy of Underground Theory if you haven't already. You can get essays from all of us. So yeah, peace out. Thanks a lot. My only hope is that when enough people become pessimist, then out of despair, somebody maybe does something. But you know why I also like to be a pessimist? Because it's the only way to have a nice life. If you're an optimist, then always bad things happen and you are always uh, disappointed. When you are a pessimist, 
then you look around, okay, there are bad, but from time to time something nice happens, and you are, as a pessimist, you are a little bit glad all the time, no? You are listening to One Dime Radio. Become a patron at patreon.com slash one dime to support the show and get access to extra content.